This is Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood, certified financial planner and president of Smallwood Wealth Management. With more than 30 years of experience in helping people with wealth management, financial planning, business ownership, estate planning, insurance, and more, John's here to share the news you can use to improve your financial confidence. Now, best-selling author and six-time five-star wealth manager award winner, John L. Smallwood. Today, we are going to be digging into the concept of the wealth curve conversation and how valuable the tool and the conversation is not only in the initial planning process for us to get to know you, but more importantly, with our existing clients and ongoing updates and communication, because as we all know, life changes and then you need to make some changes somewhere else in the plan. We have a new fixture in the office. He's called Dexter. It's my dog. Everybody knows that he's been around for a long time. We had two dogs, Dexter and Cooper. And Cooper suddenly had a heart attack last week and passed away. So Dexter was always good in the office. Cooper was a barker, so we can never have him. Dexter is now a permanent fixture here in the office. Imagine barking right now while we're doing the podcast. That wouldn't be good, right? So the value in the planning process, this is where things get distorted in the financial planning process. The family, the income, the taxes, the savings, the debts, the lifestyle, the assets, the future obligations, future inheritances, future structures, goals, etc., and the defense is all part of a really strategic plan. But a lot of the financial planning process is so independently focused on rate of return as if rate of return is going to solve all and everybody's problems. And that is really not the case in the long run, because what happens is you get market volatility, you get all these things that are gonna adjust and bring things back to the norm. And what you find is that typically fund A, fund B, fund C, over long extended periods of time, are gonna come pretty close together if they're in the same asset category and they're in the same asset class and they're managed from the same perspective. Regardless of expenses, regardless of how things are working. And the reality is what's so much more important is the impact of taxes, the impact of how income hits the tax return, the impact of the family. And the reason why I brought the dog up is it creates a whole different level of dynamic. Losing a dog, losing a family member, family member having an issue with it, etc. And you know, your advisor, the person that you deal with on an ongoing basis, that we really need to understand what's happening, right? So why don't you stop and think for a second about, I'm going to break this down into probably about nine different components, actually maybe 12 if I really think through this the right way, because it really comes down to understanding the family makeup. It's not just the immediate family, but it's the surrounding family members as well, the brothers, the sisters, the parents, the outlaws, the in-laws, whatever you want to call them. And the idea is what's happening, right? So if you think about yourself for a second, you're at a certain age, what's going on in your life? What's important right now? Do you have a health issue? Are you trying to get back on track? Do you have a job issue? What's the pressure, positive and or negative, that is impacting you personally? It's going to affect your overall plan. You may be in a period where there's really not much happening and it's like, hey, not much happening. Good. How's my spouse? What are they going through? Are they transitioning out of a job into another job? Are they looking for another job? Are they part of the group that wants to get back into work but doesn't want to work a lot? What's happening with that spouse? 
what are your kids going on? Are they getting married? Are they going to college? Are they going to grammar school? Are they walking for the first time? How many kids am I going to have? When I first started having kids and I'm an only child and my wife wanted a lot of kids, and I was like, oh, I'm good with one. I'm great with two. I'm really good with three. I'm fantastic with four. You know, here we are four kids later. Never in my wildest dream that I imagine that I would have four children. And then what comes along with the four children is colleges and weddings and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, which I didn't have in my world, but sweet 16s, cars, private schools, vacations, sports, trainers, and oh my God, all kinds of wonderful stuff. But it creates a lot of financial pressure on the planet, a lot of expectations. And then what's going on with them? I've got two graduations, a high school graduation, a college graduation, and a wedding for this year, and then a, my daughter's going off to college. Those are all things that need planning, they need time, they're gonna impact from a financial standpoint, and we need to understand that. And then there's the brothers, the sisters, the parents, the dynamics of that, and it may be even close friends that are extremely close to you, and you really need to stop and think about what distractions are going on, what financial burdens may I may not have with this, health burdens, are we properly protected in the right areas? You start thinking about how could the family, the immediate family, and you could even include in their business partner because they end up being like immediate family, right? And they have a positive and negative impact on your bottom line. And really having that conversation about what's important, why, what do you want to achieve for them if they're young? What kind of college do you want to send them off to? And what's the wedding going to be like? And what do you want to do for them along that timeline? If you think about your timeline, you're here today and you're going to 100 plus or minus. And what are all the things that are going to happen during that time frame? Am I financially prepared for it? And if not, how do I get prepared for it? And really focusing on the impact on the plan. If your advisor doesn't understand the family makeup, how can he really, he or she create a financial strategy for you? doesn't seem to make sense to me, but often the conversation is completely different. That's a secondary conversation afterwards in a lot of cases. So what I've seen time and time again is along the road, along that timeline, somebody's poor planning in the household, in the immediate family, creates a major expense that was not anticipated, such as long-term care, such as a disability, such as somebody being sick and now you got to take time off of work to be home with that person and it's affecting your job and it's affecting your ability to focus on the job, right? So all the contingencies and all the factors that we're putting into the planning process to create an optimal blueprint and optimal scorecard are really, you know, family is one of the major, major points. Like if you think about it again, I have those four kids. Well, we're going to put the four kids into, in my particular world, it was private high school and it was college. And now we got a wedding coming up. All of those have tremendous opportunity costs associated with them. If you didn't plan right on the other side, because a lot of people, you know, do all these things and there's no money left over for retirement. And then they become a burden back on the family. <laughs> Seen that over and over and over again. It's kind of like a great big nightmare if that were the case. Okay. Then you want to start thinking about the next component that I want to talk about, number two here, is the income. And if you think about yourself for a second, 
you're either self-employed, you work for a company, you're either building up through the company or you're high level management. And with that comes different ways in which your income is going to be taxed. It's going to come out of the business differently. You might own rental properties and there's depreciation allowances and all different types of income sources. We did a document called the 19 Sources of Retirement Income and how to maximize each one of those so that you have as many of these, but each of them creates some sort of tax consequence that is on your plant. One of the things that's really important from a business perspective, if you're a business owner, how are you paying yourself? What kind of S distribution or LLC or partnership or C corporation, whatever those things are, how is that structured? I always joke, as a business owner, there are things that you can do to your profit and loss statement. You can grow that business exponentially if you focus on the key performance indicators, meaning how do I make that business more profitable and how do I maximize the tax benefits that that business may have available to it from depreciation, from qualified business income deduction or QBI. In New Jersey and other states, now you have this alternative way of paying tax and it can be paid through the corporation and allows you to take the SALT deduction without taking the SALT deduction. So there's all kinds of little nuances. And if you work for a company and you're bonus driven or you're performance driven, how are you going to maximize the income that you're receiving by adding the value back to the firm so that if you can add extensive value back, you're getting rewarded from that. And if you work for a company or you're, you know, W-2 employee, there's not a lot of things that you can do as far as tax offsets because of the way that income is being taxed. But getting really clear on do my investments spill a lot of taxable income into the portfolio? Does the rental property do that? What does the business do? Is the business creating a lot of phantom income for us? And it's just really getting that really quality control and understanding of how can I maximize the income sources that I have, but simultaneously minimize the impact of taxation in my personal plan. Because to me, income coming in, one of the most important parts is the savings rate, right? And we'll talk about that. And it's the income tax. I have control over the savings rate. I have some control over how I pay the taxes. You know, it's my structure that's going to be the difference between certain tax brackets and, you know, higher and lower tax brackets and benefiting from the deductions that are available. And it's creating a format that allows you to look at it and say, am I getting the full benefit from it? Where are the leaks? How am I paying too much in taxes? In that third area, what we find under the taxes When you think about income taxes, state taxes, payroll taxes, Medicare, FICA, et cetera, and then tax from assets, which is going to be dividends, capital gains, realized capital gains, losses, loss carry forwards, all those things. What is the true tax rate that you're paying when you factor in those taxes? You're not factoring in sales tax and all those other taxes, but there's significant drains. How can you take that from a 31% bracket, you know, effective down to 28%? And when I say effective, it's sort of like the average that I pay, right? So if I make $100,000 and I pay total of $28,000 in taxes, my effective bracket is like 28%. But my marginal bracket might be 31%, depending upon where my last dollars are being taxed. That's considered marginal. So if I'm above $620,000 and income is getting taxed there, it's getting taxed at the marginal bracket of 37% in the current tax law. But 
my effective brackets may only be 31% because not all my money's getting taxed at the same rate. And I gotta tell you, doing this for 31 years, closing in on 32, which would be May of this year, I can't tell you the amount of people that don't really know what they really earn and they don't know what they pay in taxes. Like they get close to it, but they don't know what it is. Even in salary jobs, it's really funny. But I think one of the things that I want to focus on always is, you know, restarting the year, restarting where I am and understanding, well, what happened last year? How did I do? Where's all my income and where's all the taxation? And as I'm doing the planning, if I understand the benefit of tax reduction, how can I modify that or move it around a little bit so it doesn't create as much of a tax track? And then savings rate, the fourth component, is such a powerful tool in accumulating wealth. If I do not have the right savings rate, why it's possible to accumulate a lot of wealth, the odds go down greatly. The more I spend as a percentage of the income that I earn, the less likelihood it is that I'm really going to accumulate wealth. And the key is like, what is savings and where did I put it? You know, putting it in the 401k and getting a match is a good thing. Putting it in a savings account is a good thing. But a lot of people think, hey, I'm putting $1,000 a month into the savings account. But then you look at the savings account and the balances really haven't changed that much. And you look at, well, 1000 goes in, but 800 comes out. So it's really only $200 a month staying in. So this is about, you know, did I reduce debt? Did I put money in the savings account? Did I put money in short-term vehicles? Did I put money in my retirement and get the maximum match? Did I put money away in real estate or equities or some sort of mutual fund or something to that nature? Where did I put that money and what percentage of my total income did it go into? Not my after-tax income, but my total income. So if I make 100000 what I'm looking to see is at least 10,000, 10% going into savings. As I cross above that, I'm trying to get you to 15%. In a lot of cases, we can get people there quickly and easily because it's a habit. Chapter three of my book, It's Your Wealth, Keep It, which was an Amazon bestseller about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, or a year ago actually, where December of last year, it got number one in retirement planning and number two in wealth management. So I think it's really interesting but chapter three goes into the savings rate and we really get into the psychology of savings rate. Meaning if I make $100,000 and I save 5% of my income or $5,000, that means between taxes and lifestyle, I'm consuming 95,000. If I save 20% of my income, you know, $20,000, that means I'm only consuming 80,000 or 80% of the income versus 95. So there's an extra 15% that's going somewhere. The probability of the 20% savings person hitting and making their goals is significantly higher than that person of the 5%, right? The only way the 5% person really wins is they get a lightning bolt. But the person who's saving $20,000 versus five doesn't have to take the same amount of risk to hit the goals. And risk is not like, hey, just because I take risk doesn't mean I'm going to get a return. You're seeing that in the first part of this calendar year where markets are under pressure, all markets but it really comes down to the psychology of the saver versus the low saver or non-saver really comes down to how they're going to spend money. Like they're going to accumulate more money and they need to take a far less percentage withdrawal to meet the same lifestyle, right? And one of the things that I like to talk about is the concept of really good habits. So if I have a good savings habit, that means my lifestyle's in check and pretty much everything else should be optimally done. And therefore, it's easier to retire. It's easier to hit those goals. 
And I think that's something that, you know, we live in this shiny world object, right? You know, this world of shiny objects and, ooh, I want to have this big thing over here and I want to get this and I want to do that. And I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, geez, it's what I, you know, goals drive the activity, the good activity and the right decisions and stuff like that. But you get on this roller coaster, like, how do you want to achieve those goals? Is it at all costs that I get the goal and I violate my savings rate? You have to set the right parameters for yourself. Like when I'm setting goals and I'm going to do things, the savings rate is at the top of my list. And then I can do those lifestyle decisions because I can handle it if it's within, I've got, you know, backstops and liquid reserve and, you know, all this stuff to help me when things don't go right. But if I'm on the edge, when something goes wrong, you're just not in a good spot, right? So savings rate tells us a lot about the individual. And we all have opportunities and we all have things that go wrong in life and et cetera. And, you know, sometimes savings get depleted in an afternoon just because of stuff that happens. But there's a mindset that I see out there a lot of times is the low savers sometimes are feeling like victims, right? They just, ah, my budget's my budget. I can't seem to get out of it. We make our own budgets. We make our own decisions. We get ourselves involved in our financial plans, regardless of whether I have a written plan or not. We're there and we're doing it. So it really should be that, hey, I can spend a certain amount of money a certain way. Am I getting the biggest bang for my dollars? Am I getting the most enjoyment for the money that I'm spending? And how can I redesign it so that it fits my lifestyle? And we happen to be in a really interesting spot where the fifth category is the debt window, right? So the debt structure is, you know, do I have student loans? Do I have personal debts? Do I have car loans, mortgages, credit cards, family loans, interfamily loans? Who do I owe money to? And what's the amount that I owe? What am I paying monthly? And what are the interest rates? The key is, can I get that debt optimally aligned for my financial situation? Early on in my career, as I met new people and got introduced, I remember a couple of times going out to these big, big mansions. Young people, you know, their mid-30s bought these homes. You pull up and there's not a lot of landscaping, no deck in the back of the house. And you kind of walk in and as you walk in the foyer, it's got a very hollow sound because there's no furniture. And you look into the family room or the living room or the great room in the front of the house and there's a little tykes furniture and there's no drapes on the wall. And what happened is, you know, people are, they're leveraged and they've got the big house, but they're not enjoying it. And their mindset isn't going to grow into it. But what I would find is it was taking way too much of a percentage of their income. So therefore, they couldn't protect themselves the right way. They couldn't save money the right way. And it was sort of that repeating pattern over and over and over again. As a financial advisor, those decisions put you at a position where you've just decreased the probability of success, right? And the whole point of a wealth plan, a wealth curve scorecard, the wealth curve blueprint, creating a financial strategy with anybody else is to create the goals, to create the savings rates and the successful habits so that you meet the goals that you want to achieve. And when something goes wrong, because you have really good habits, you have the ability to adapt to whatever the situation is at that point in time without being cataclysmic. So lifestyle is the next one. And lifestyle, you know, the sixth box here is what we're talking about is income minus taxes, minus savings rate, less debt should equal lifestyle. That should be the math. But if you have credit card debt, lifestyle is probably greater than that math. And the other side of that equation is you live a certain way. So there's a lifestyle that you have. 
And a lot of people don't really have a good handle on what the lifestyle is. And they come in and they say, we spoke, we need $10,000 a month for our retirement. And we're going to get 4000 combined from Social Security. So we need to get $6,000 a month from our portfolios. Back in the day, we'd build a plan and we can do 6% withdrawal back in the day, you know, when interest rates were 10% in the bank and more we could do a 4% withdrawal or we can do something. And you'd build this plan thinking they're close, but they can do it. And then all of a sudden they were calling for money. I'm running up credit card debt. I'm doing something. And the idea was they didn't really have a good handle on what they were spending on a monthly basis. So here we were creating this financial strategy based on false information, which means that the probability became even less that they were going to make it. So a whole bunch of years ago, we started getting really into this concept of income minus taxes, minus savings, minus debt should equal lifestyle. Is that true? And let's figure out what that lifestyle is. And a lot of times as we go through the process into the blueprinting process, people are like, my lifestyle can't be that. I'm like, well, this is the income that you made, right? 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 This is the taxes. This is the savings that you're putting away monthly. These were your balances beginning of last year. Here's your debt structure. Where'd the money go? Long conversation. And they're like, ah, you know what? I don't know. And they go home and they spend a month to unwinding it. And they realize, oh my God, we're really spending like thirteen dollars or $14,000 a month. They're mortified by it because they were not aware of it. And I find that the financial tools that we have available to us today can really help us understand where the money goes categorize that into your own thinking. But I always have this concept of, you know, I got to have utilities, I got to have car insurance, and I got to have health insurance, I got to have homeowners insurance, and I got to have certain core basics. And I want to protect my income, and I want to protect my assets. So I want to have all the right strategies, and I want to have lifestyle. The key is, am I designing it properly so that the decisions that I made are being realistic? If the savings rate is right, and the debt structure is right, therefore the lifestyle is usually correct, again, that gets you in a much higher probability of meeting and achieving those goals. And then the key is like, where are the assets? How much cash do you have? What percentage of that is that against your income? How much money do you have sitting around for what we like to call opportunity, liquid cash available, not in cash, but you know, liquid money available to achieve the goals or opportunities that are going to happen? You know, What's going to happen is the stock market's going to go up and the stock market's going to go sideways and the stock market's going to go down. When it's down, that's an opportunity. And if I don't have any cash to take advantage of that opportunity, I'm going to miss that opportunity. And it happens in all kinds of asset class. It happens real estate market happens everywhere. But the key is there's a blend that you're looking for, a ratio of savings to short term to retirement. How much money do I really want in qualified retirement plans versus currently taxable, you know, tax deferred assets versus tax free assets? Um, how much money do I want in my business as a percentage of my net wealth? How much money do I want in real estate? When do I take chips off the table? How do I rebalance? How do I take the profits? How do I build up a more stable asset thing? Because we all know that markets will go up, markets will go sideways, and markets will go down. And those are all markets, not just stock market, but that's real estate markets, that's business markets, that's the economy as an overall place. And how we're going to be prepared for that is really interesting. And as you look at your different phases of life, you know, if you're young, 30-year-old, out of college, building up a family, kids, your goal is very accumulation-driven. And as those kids get 20 years in, it's like, okay, I got to pay for the school. I got to pay for the wedding, still accumulate wealth and head into that retirement zone. And when I get to retirement, do I have enough capital to sustain the way I spend my money and the way I enjoy and do the things that I want to do? 
or should I put a couple more years in or should I just reduce my lifestyle? These are all choices and decisions that we have to make, but understanding the role of what the assets are and constantly rethinking and repositioning and making them more efficient is really what the conversation should be on an ongoing basis. And then the eighth thing here is the future outflow inflows. Four kids, four colleges, high schools, cars, weddings, family obligations, other commitments, goals. You know, you could have a country club goal. You could have a boat goal, a second home goal, a third home goal, start your own business goal, etc. Those require knowledge and conversation with the financial advisor that these are things that I want to do. These are the obligations that I've set out. I could be inheriting money. Am I going to inherit the money in the right way? How much money is that going to be based on today's dollars? How well is that money protected from multiple sources, not just inheritance tax, but creditors, et cetera? Is there ways to better set up my money to protect it as it comes in? As you start to think about that and you think about your family and you think about all, you know, the immediate family and then the out families, et cetera, is... What are all these future things that we're going to have to do as a family and friends and traveling and, you know, all the stuff that you want to do? These are important to timeline, you know, on your wealth curve. Like people come in with goals of saying, we'd like to do a family vacation in 2025. Big vacation, go on safari, take the kids on a ski trip to take the kids on a cruise, whatever it is. People love to do that. And it's a big number. Take the kids to Disney, whatever it is. And we need to start putting away money for it today. So that when it comes, it's not like the big credit card bill and we spend the next 18 months trying to get out of the credit card bill. So that becomes understanding those future obligations. And a lot of those future obligations don't change, meaning they morph, they're different, but they're there. And life's journey takes us in different directions. But the question is, if I'm prepared for them, like if I'm preparing for my kid to go to state school and they get into top school um, and it's $75,000 a year and you haven't prepared for it, now you're saying no to the kid or the kid has massive student loans, which is a good thing also in certain circumstances. Am I really protected properly? Am I ready for it from a saving standpoint? If I became disabled, how does that work? If I died prematurely, will those things still happen for my family or is their life completely changed, right? And that's where you get into the defense section, the ninth component of the strategy, which is umbrellas and disability and long-term care and wills and trusts and life insurance and true asset protection strategies. How well are we defended with our plan today and where the plan is going? Is the plan thinking about where it's going so that it has the excess protections in place so that when you get there, it doesn't get robbed from you? And these are constantly need to be reviewed because your income and your liabilities and your goals are constantly changing and morphing. You know, as you sit back and you think about this conversation that we just had is, you know, what is it that you love about your current plan? And you might have three, four things. I mean, people say funny things to me like, now that I had this conversation, nothing, you know, and no, but seriously, there's so many shining bullets and great things that you've done, but really understanding what are the things that you love and then capitalizing them and doing more of them and then eliminating what keeps you up at night. Those are things that are not good. Lack of sleep, we all know it's not good, right? So we got to get to sleep. But what are the things that really keep you up at night? What's bothering you about your plan and how do you solve that? And then sitting here thinking about this is, what do you think the most important 90-day actions are that if you took action on these four or five things, your plan would be in a lot better state? 
I urge you or encourage you is a better way to do it, to go to the website smallwoodwealth.com and watch the three-minute video. There's 37 financial pressures that are going to pop out at you in that. And, you know, love to hear from you. You know, send us an email. You can go right on our client services at smallwoodwealth.com and send us an email. Hey, I watched the video and these five things scare the hell out of me. Can you help us? That's what we do. So in kind of bringing this back together again, the conversation is about you it's about your wealth, your goals, your dreams, what you want to achieve. And our side is how can we help you get there? Are we the right people to help you get there? And you can go to the website. You can self-schedule what we call a wealth curve conversation. You can call the office at 732-542-1565, set up a free, no obligation conversation. And we're working on an environment where we're going to do this in a larger group format because what we find is sometimes people are a little bit nervous about, hey, I've never really worked with a financial advisor and I'm not sure if I really want to do it, but if I can get into a seminar or a workshop that's you know like a better working workshop that's not one-on-one, but it's more of a group thing, I can really get an understanding of whether or not this is really the right thing for me. So you'll see that coming if you're listening to this podcast in the future from when it's recorded, which everybody's listening to this in the future from when it was recorded. But perhaps you'll see one of those events on the website that'll be on a regular basis, the Wealth Curve conversation webinar or something like that. I don't know what we're going to call it yet. We designed it the other day, and I think it might be a little bit easier for people because What's shocking to me is people feel like, hey, I don't fit the criteria or I'm not right for it. And they don't take action. And then you talk to them. They're like, oh, well, we could help you with that and help you with that. And they're like, oh, my God, if I'd known that, I would be further ahead. And that's what people really want is they want to have a team coming together to help and make the right conversations about your future. And if you can do that, then we can help you, or maybe we can't be the people to help you, but we can refer to you to people that can help you, then you're going to be in a better spot. You know, I encourage you to take advantage of those options. You can download our 19 sources of retirement income on the website. You can actually self-schedule and you can go to the website, click a link about buying the book. If you buy the book and you want to do a wealth curve conversation and you say, hey, I bought the book on Amazon or wherever it is, I'll send you another copy signed so you can give that copy that you bought to somebody that could benefit from it. Double risk, no offer, you know, having fun there. But no, just seriously, the whole thing is about the conversation and about then once you understand the conversation, you understand the goals. Now, what are the strategies that are going to help you get there? And what are the events that are going to potentially take it away? Can we protect against it? Can we create buffers around it, et cetera? So we're here for you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Want weekly lessons from John? Hit the subscribe button now. And thanks for listening to Wealth Curve Talk. Talk with John L. Smallwood is brought to you by Smallwood Wealth Management, an investment advisor representative. Strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone, and the information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action as information and or opinions are 
are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Smallwood Wealth Management provides content that is true and accurate as of the date of publishing. However, we give no assurance or warranty regarding the accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this website or podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, including, but not limited to, any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, misleading, or defamatory statements.